to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hello and welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley from Innovation Oz. Today we have a treat. We're talking about government policy creation as it affects the tech sector. We are quite literally going to be discussing how the sausage gets made. And to do this, I'm joined by the Director of Global Public Policy at Lassian, David Masters. Welcome, David. Hello, James, and thank you for having me on. Well, I hope you've had your morning coffee. because I've uh, had a couple, actually. <laughs> all right, we're going we're, we're to do this fast and furious. But the topic of discussion today is a set of principles that should be taken into account or followed in relation to policy development. This was published by Atlassian and published in open source form, if you like. Just before we get into it, though, David, I'm going to go through a little bit about your background because I think it's kind of interesting and it's worth noting on the way into this discussion. Obviously, Director of Global Public Policy at Atlassian now. Atlassian, we all know, is Australia's most successful technology company and quite an extraordinary story. Prior to that, seven years as Corporate Affairs Director at Microsoft, so large US multinational. You spent time at HP, time at Parker and Partners as a government affairs consultant. Light way to describe it. I think some would <laughs> refer to me as a lobbyist, but you know, I don't like that. That's well, there, there you go. And, but, and prior to that, some time inside government with the Department of Finance. And where I first met you, I think you were in Helen Coonan's office. So you had also spent time all those years ago inside a ministerial office. So you've looked at policy from a, a bunch of different angles, I think it's fair to say, in tech specifically. No, thanks, James. I think our paths even crossed even earlier than that because I started life as a technology journalist. Well, that's right. I saw that. I saw that on your uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> and for those people listening, like we are talking about an incredibly important part of the economy, the society, the, the regulation of tech. And it's certainly been in the news in recent weeks and months and, and years. There's been a bunch of snowballing issues. So I will stay at the outset. We're going to keep the discussion agnostic and try not to talk about specific issues necessarily or specific companies, although you know we, we may fall into that depending on, on where we're at. I'm going to start though, David, just at a top level, why did Atlassian feel the need to publish eight principles and how did you arrive at those principles? Yeah, look, I think it, it it comes back to the company's sort of philosophy and, and values. And so, you know, one of one of Atlassian's famous values is is open company, no bullshit. And I think if you're going to engage with governments, it's really helpful the government kind of knows where you stand. I think it's also really useful to have a set of principles that that help to guide your internal thought processes. So as you see regulatory proposals come across the desk from government and, uh, you know, at a global sense, not just in Australia, but from the US and from Europe, it's good to have a set of grounding, I guess, guidelines that help you understand what do we think about that and do that in a rigorous way. So rather than sort of everything that comes across, we have to go through the thought process of saying, well, look, what do we think about this? What does this mean for us? We have a set of principles we can go back to it just enables us to really have checks and balances internally about how we think of things. The benefit of publishing them, I think for us, you know, particularly Mike and Scott take their position as sort of kind of champions of that founder community, champions of that tech startup ecosystem in Australia. Really, It's a really important role for them. And so I think publishing them out there and, and saying, well, look, you know, if you think they're valuable to you, take them, use them, modify them, do what you will, the whole benefit of publishing as an open source under Creative Commons is that, you know, people can do that. 
and also provide us feedback. If you don't think they hit the mark or you think there's things we're missing or you think there's things that we should consider, then let us know and then we can iterate and build on these. Because I think the principles really come from a place of looking at what's emerged in tech regulation over the last sort of four to five years, seeing where we think governments might be falling down or things that they haven't considered appropriately. But that will change. I mean, I, I think tech regulation is moving very, very rapidly. And so I, I think we see our set of principles as a living document. We don't see them set in stone. But right now, I think we, we see we'll get a good, a good couple of years out of them before we need to, to reinvent them completely. So your audience for these eight principles, and we will go through them, but the audience for these eight principles are other tech companies to work out where they sit on an issue, or it's for government ministerial offices or government departments when they're shaping policy, or it's for all involved. I think for all involved, I think, look, it's our statement of, of what we believe in and the questions and issues that government needs to think through as they think about regulating the tech sector. So if it is a company that's sort of think through a framework of how do they respond to government and they feel that our principles have some benefit in doing that, then, then they should use them. I think for government, hopefully, some governments see it as a, a valuable contribution to the policy debate and, and they're able to take them, consider what it is they're developing and saying, well, look, actually, have we answered these questions? in this process. So it's kind of for everyone, really, in that policy development process. I think for those that don't have a function like mine, and that's the majority of the Australian industry, you know, it is a useful thing to have someone who has worked in policy, has done a lot of work with governments, to put some thoughts down on paper that allow them to, you know, that assist them into going through that thought process themselves. Okay, you've mentioned that um, the co-founders of Atlassian take seriously their role as industry leaders. I just wonder, and we, we talked about this very briefly before you came on, you've been recruited from Microsoft to drive global public policy. We're now seeing these eight principles launched. I wonder, is this the start of a more organised local technology industry engagement with government? Look, I think the local industry has been trying to engage with government for quite a while. I think. I think companies at a size like Atlassian sort of hit a tipping point where they go from being kind of interested in engaging with government to being quite critical to who they are and and to their ongoing success as a business. And I think you've seen that, you know, even if you go back to the the 90s, I mean, tech policy wasn't really a thing until probably Microsoft went through its sort of challenges, you know, antitrust and competition issues in the late 90s and early 2000s that sort of led to it investing quite heavily in policy functions. And then you've seen pretty much every other technology firm that's sort of grown to that scale has had to think through these issues because it becomes, you know, your engagement with government becomes less interesting and more existential (laughs) in how that operates. So I think, yeah, look, I think, you know, having a company like Atlassian, but there are also others like, you know, Canvas starting to be more engaged in policy. Afterpay is another good example of, of a company that's starting to really think through these issues and how they engage with government. And they're interesting in that they're working in a very regulated sector, financial services space. So, um, yeah, look, I think I think so. I, I think um, the industry has been reasonably effective in some areas and probably less effective in others. You know, if I look at some of the things that Atlassian sort of dipped its toe into before I joined around research and development tax incentives, I think that was a, a really great campaign that, that they you know, sort of led on. I think a lot of the work that was done post some of the changes around immigration, and I'm just trying to think when the 457 visa changes uh, came into place, I think it was 2017, 2018. And, you know, the industry did a lot of work to try and help government to understand actually, yes, you might be concerned about compliance with that scheme, but focus on the compliance. Don't kill the flow of talented people into Australia because that's actually really critical for businesses like Atlassian to grow 
and to keep product development here in Australia. Okay, we're going to go through these principles. As we do, I know we're agnostic on issues, but there are some issues, and you mentioned a, a couple just now, where the tech sector did have a kind of visceral reaction. So just in that context, like we'll keep in the back of our mind encryption laws, research and development tax incentive, and obviously the very recent Google, Facebook media bargaining <laughs> code. And and obviously there's other, you know, skills and STEM and immigration, as you mentioned also in the background there. But the big three, I think, were those three we mentioned up front. So first up, define the playing field. What are the clear objectives? Is it fair to say that policymakers do generally adhere to these principles as laid out to a greater or lesser extent? Yeah, they do. I, I think that the thought process behind define the playing field is to be very, very clear about the objective of the regulatory response. And I think sometimes government can fall into a trap of saying, well, look, regulatory and legislative processes are slow. And so we're only going to get you know one crack at this. So let's try and capture every possible hypothetical situation that we can imagine that might fall within the bounds of this regulatory response. And sometimes that can create unintended consequences. And so really that define the playing field concepts is sort of say, let's be clear about the issue that you're trying to solve and let's solve that. You know, let's be, let's be quite surgical about what it is that we're, we're doing in that response because if you make the playing field too broad, then the rules are a little bit more vague. That's generally what, what's behind that. So you mentioned encryption as you know, an example of one that you want to talk about. And I think this was challenging for government. So the Assistance and Access Act, which is the, the law that you're referring to, or TOLA as some people refer to it. I think one of the challenges when you're, when you're dealing with a law that is about how the intelligence and law enforcement community operate, that's not something the government's very comfortable in talking about. And so one of the challenges that sort of existed in that is that the industry was going to government saying, well, well, tell us the use cases for this. You say it's not about encryption. It's not about breaking encryption. What technical assistance are you looking for? Give us some examples. And I think the government was very reluctant to talk about that. And there are good reasons for why they didn't want to talk about that. But I think we need to find forums where government to be very clear about what objectives it's trying to achieve so that you don't have this mistrust that starts to develop in the community and in the industry about what government is actually trying to do. And I think that one is a really good example of that define the playing field, help everyone understand what the objective is you're trying to achieve. And then in some respects, we can have actually an honest conversation about our concerns about how you're doing that. Are there other solutions that you can put in place? But we're actually talking from facts rather than sort of, you know, hypotheticals. Okay. Then once you've defined that playing field, then it's engaged with the issue and this gets tricky because we're talking about do we have a clear understanding of the technology? And certainly in the discussions about encryption, the jury's out on whether there was a clear understanding. Yeah, I, th I think this is one where what I really want to emphasise to both the industry and to government on this is that we need to be talking outside of the cut and thrust of policy or regulatory proposal. We need to be understanding each other when we can just have a conversation and we can talk about what it is that we do, our concerns, what we want to do as a business, what we want to do as an industry and have that broad conversation so there's that level of understanding from government. Okay, well, these are the things that this industry cares about. This is what they want to do. This is their ambitions, which builds that level of understanding. And similarly, on the industry side, having that conversation with government to really understand what are they trying to achieve? What are their concerns? I mean, the encryption one has been bubbling away for a long time. I mean, I think if you were engaged with government on those issues, you could see it coming. So a lot of the industry that weren't engaging with government sort of saw that one come out of the blue and were very surprised when it landed. What's, what's happening here? Those that had been talking to government could see that 
you know, encryption was becoming increasingly a concern for law enforcement and national security agencies. And, but, you know, there really wasn't a dialogue that was operating very effectively between the majority of the industry. There were some players that engaged in that conversation and, and government on those issues. And I think you need to create that safe space where everyone can put their issues on the table and address it and think it through before you've got a legislative proposal, before you've got some piece of regulation that everyone's sort of looking at and, and throwing rocks at or, you know, vice versa from government throwing rocks the other way. So it's just really hard to have a sensible debate when there's, you know, emotions and political rhetoric involved. Yeah, it gets tricky though. There's uh, some powerful competing interests. I'm not talking specifically on encryption, but on any given technology issue, there, there are some powerful companies, there's powerful vested interests outside of tech. As you know, lots of vested interests who will want to have their say and make things as emotional as possible in some cases. <laughs> Principle three, treat the ailment, don't kill the patient. I would say many of these relate to consultation, transparency, you know, as a theme. So in this case, does the matter use proportionate means to, and minimise unintended consequences? Yeah, it links a little bit to that first principle around defining the playing field. Once you've got the outcome very, very clear, then what is the most efficient regulatory response to address the issue? As opposed to, you know, as I said on the, on the first principle, sometimes government has a tendency to go a little bit too broad. And, and partly that's about if, you know, you take policy issue and you go into the sort of the hypothetical realm of policy development, so you're not talking to people and so to your point, James, around transparency and openness, if, you, if you're thinking this through, you can come up with all sorts of random hypothetical scenarios about how issues might play out and then draft regulation and legislation to deal with that. Now, probably a large percentage of those are never going to happen. <laughs> and maybe the better thing is actually government say, well, all right, well, if they do, then let's find a response to that issue once it comes up because we, we can't see all the technologies coming down the pipeline. We can't see all the implications of what this technology is doing. So rather than trying to shadow all of that, let's respond to the issues that we know about, that we understand, that we can, we can actually pull apart right now, address those, and then as other issues emerge, then create a, a regulatory framework that allows for that to be dealt with reasonably efficiently as you go forward. I, I think one thing, we, I, I don't want to harp too much on the media bargaining code, but I think that's one where you're trying to, the ACCC is almost trying to solve multiple issues with one piece of regulation. And if you look at the contrast between what the ACCC is doing and what, say, the European Union, European Commission is doing, the European Commission has taken a copyright approach to how you level the playing field in terms of negotiations between publishers and large digital platforms. And then it's taking a separate approach around market and competition issues. So the Digital Markets Act and the Copyright Directive are two very different approaches for two distinct issues where under the media bargaining code, you're kind of trying to address the market power and the negotiating issues between publishers and those large digital platforms under one regulatory framework. And I, I just don't know if it, if it really works as effectively as it could. Yeah, the digital bargaining code is a bit of a, a head spinner as to what particular problem they're trying to solve. Okay, consult early, consult openly. I think we've, we've kind of talked through that a little bit. I would say, though, on the digital bargaining code and some of the work that the HCC has done on, on other tech issues, like that has been a long time coming. There's been a long process. There's been lots of opportunity for discussion, as we saw recently. Yeah, and look, if you read our submission, we, we actually don't call that out as a, as a problem on this one. I, I think we might disagree on the outcome, but, but certainly you can't fault the HCC for its consultative approach on this. Right. This is what I meant by the more or less, like, you know, there are many, many policies developed in government and, uh, you know, some best practice and some not so best practice. I think we could agree on that. You do uh, 
make a good point here, this black box power within that principle. And I, I guess that would apply a little bit more to things around national security related telco encryption, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think I made the point around having this sort of open discussion. I think when you have ministerial discretion at play that isn't clearly laid out in law, that that, that becomes problematic because in the same way that sometimes government runs off into hypotheticals, the industry can be just as guilty of that as well. And so if we see these broad powers, then industry will go, well, well how could that be used? Well, it could be used in this way or it could do that. or you know. So I think that transparency is really, really important. And then having mechanisms, you know, as part of any legislation where that can be challenged, where it can be tested, I think is really, really important because technology policy, it's really complex. And as we were saying before, technology is moving so quickly and so rapidly and the the consequences, both societal, economic, of the use of technology are emerging fairly rapidly as well. And so in some respects, if you don't have mechanisms that allow you to sort of check and test and query, escalate, as issues start to emerge, it becomes problematic because then it, it really is just a, a discretionary power that the government has at its right. Okay, so that one around avoiding that kind of black box powers, that was principle five, let the light in. The next three we might take together. Principle six is around address behaviour, don't punish success, which really calls out this idea that you target you know, singular companies or individual companies rather than the behaviours or structural issues behind them. Principle seven is tech and trust is global, like how does Australia fit into a global network of rules and regulations? And principle eight, build on the foundation for shared success, which I guess is around don't kill the patient in some ways also. Yeah, look, I think you sort of summarise the address behaviour, don't punish success principle pretty well. I mean, I think that is sort of saying, well, look, if governments, and governments do have legitimate concerns about behaviours of particular companies, and, and I think... That is something that's valid, but I, I don't think law should be written with those companies in mind. I mean, those companies may have drawn attention to the issue that the government feels they need to address, but, but legislation should always be you know, company agnostic, should have a framework that says, well, look, if, if someone crosses that threshold and coming back to the EU approach to how it's addressing competition issues, now I think the definitions within the Digital Markets Act are quite Good. I mean, it basically says, all right, well, if you're a company that's had across Europe $6.5 billion in revenue over the last three years, if you've got a market cap over $65 billion, you've got, I think it's 45 million customers across the EU or 10,000 business customers, you know, you have to meet sort of both of those definitions before you sort of are defined as a gatekeeper. But I, I like that because it's objective. I mean, you, you know that when you hit that threshold, it, it will lead to a whole range of additional compliance measures and potential remedies from within the competition law perspective. So that, you know, I think we're much more comfortable with because we know what the goalpost is as opposed to something where it's like, well, if we see it (laughs) and we think it's bad, then we'll call it out and we'll name the company, you know. So those, again, coming back to that ministerial power, ministerial discretion, I think, you know, that can be problematic because it's not objective. That tech and, and trust is, is global principle really is the same. We operate within a global ecosystem. So every Australian company that starts in the tech space generally is export focused. The Australian market is, is relatively small. So the majority who start up, they might be focused on Australian customers to begin with. They're thinking about where they expand next because there's only 26 million people here in Australia. And so I, I think, you know, if you want to grow your market, then you're going to look at the US, you're going to look at Europe, you're going to look at Asia. And so we need to understand that we operate in that global ecosystem. 
And, you know, FUD's quite strong <laughs> across our industry. And so, unfortunately, that brand, that brand Australia in terms of how we make policy, how we regulate our companies, it does actually have an impact on how our companies are perceived and how our markets perceive. We want to attract the best talent here. You know, people want to come to Australia and understand there's a thriving ecosystem with a supportive regulatory environment with good laws. And I think that's why we, we made that a principle. Because the other point around tech and trust is global is that also capital and talent are global. And so if we want to attract capital to Australian companies, we want to attract the best people, then we need to work on the overall branding of Australia. So I guess from what you've just said, I take it you're meaning on many regulatory policies, probably not a good idea that Australia gets out in front of uh, our peers. But I wonder also, like we, we kind of have this split vision between do we follow the US, do we follow Europe? Should we be looking, you know, to north to our, you know, our specific region? So, I mean, we don't have quite the resources or the, the talent pool in the political class to really drive world best practice policy development. So we do tend to be a follower. So what have you got to say on that? Look, I think we, we have traditionally been a follower. And I think we've sort of shifted the, <laughs> the dialogue a little bit and become more of a leader on, on, on some of these things. I, I'm not sure whether being a leader in this area of policy is the smartest move, it, only because it's right for unintended consequences. Just because, you know, we were talking about the hypothetical game, you try and play the hypothetical game, but you can't see everything that's coming down the pipeline. You don't know how technology is going to be utilised. I think particularly over the last three or four weeks, we've seen some pretty significant consequences from the use of certain platforms. So, you know, would you have said that that would have happened six months ago? I mean, some people had some foresight and said, look, there's an inevitable conclusion to where all of this is heading around the spread of misinformation and disinformation. But I think at the same time, no one could have seen the 6th of January coming down the pipeline. So I think we've got to have that flexibility. And sometimes actually waiting and seeing how things are playing out and responding effectively is not a bad strategy. I mean, I think back to my time in government. I remember I was involved in the drafting of the Spam Act in 2003, and we weren't the first country to have developed spam laws. So we were, you know, we were borrowing a lot from the Canadians in particular who'd passed a piece of legislation only a couple of years beforehand. And so US was thinking about it, Europe was thinking about it. I think you need to think about that legislation in a global framework because quite often legislation is also being developed that aligns to global standards. You know, we have Australian companies that are trying to operate globally in some respects, GDPR is now the, the privacy standard that everyone has to meet. If you're an Australian company wanting to, to work globally, you're going to have to comply with GDPR. So in some respects, it creates a framework where Australian regulators need to think very, very carefully about that harmonisation of those regulatory regimes because at the end of the day, our companies will probably start to comply with whatever they see as international global best practice because that is what they have to meet for their customers elsewhere. Okay, I'm going to start wrapping up. I've got a couple of kind of structural questions. Yeah. Um, so there's there's sort of a, it's not a splintering of policy making, but it, there's certainly a, a siloed view of policy making often from a government perspective. What do you make of the idea of an office of tech regulation? Is the impact of tech on the economy such that it deserves a whole of government view, some kind of uh, have a look at what unintended consequences might be in the offing? Yeah, look, I think having a part of the government that has that technology expertise, that understands those tech trends deeply, I think, and look, to give the government some credit, I think the Digital Technologies Task Force Initiative out of PMC is a really good one because you've got a whole bunch of people from across the public service seconded into Prime Minister and Cabinet who are working on 
you know, tech policy and, and really with the aim of, of making Australia a leading a digital economy by 2030. So that's a grand lofty ambition and, and that's a good initiative because it is starting to take a whole of public service view. And I think extending that into the regulatory side of, of the fence, having something in government that really is just watching how all of that um, is emerging, what technology is coming down the pipeline and, and thinking deeply about it so that when you know, say the Attorney General's Department from a privacy perspective or home affairs from a security perspective or industry from an industry development perspective has one place in government to kind of consult and think about how those things are emerging and developing. Who's built that expertise, who's built those relationships with industry stakeholders, knows who to call. I think that's part of the challenge is, is often as a regulatory or legislative proposal starts being developed in one portfolio, they don't have the stakeholders, they don't have the relationships with those industry participants and they do rely on others. And I've seen, say, for example, the industry department playing that role to kind of bring industry participants to the table to have these conversations with others. But I think formalising that would be a really important step. It's kind of the role that when I worked in government that the Department of Communications, IT and the Arts kind of played you know, and you look at the old National Office of the Information Economy, I'm showing my age now, but, you know, you did at least have one area in government that was thinking deeply about these issues and was brought into consultations with others. Uh, it might be a case of back to the future then. <laughs> I, I look, finally, let's look at the other side of the fence as far as, the, you know, structurally the way the industry approaches government. We kind of touched on this before, but, you know, we have a, there's a myriad of different industry associations out there and I kind of alluded to, I didn't think that Indigenous, as in the local Australian industry, had engaged with government in a particularly effective way as a collective. I'm not even sure how to ask this question. How can the industry approach government so that there's a coherent voice? And should there be an Australian voice as opposed to companies operating in Australia voice? It's, it's a difficult question to answer, James, because I think, I think the challenge the tech industry has versus some other industries. So let's, let's compare the tech industry to, say, the Banking Association or to, you know, the Minerals Council and the mining industry. You know, those are pretty homogenous sectors. You know, the four big banks kind of look like one another and they do very similar things in a regulated sector. The Minerals Council... You know, mining is a pretty consistent... I mean, you know, Rio and BHP have certain techniques and, you know, have, you know, a lot of automation and other things that, that's important. But generally across the mining sector, the issues that they care about deeply are, are pretty consistent across that sector. The challenge we have in, in the tech industry is that, you know, you have large and small companies, you have horizontal and vertical solutions, you have differing business models, proprietary, freemium, open source, ad funded. So coming to a consistent policy approach and, and set of you know, a set of policy interests is, is really hard. So I don't diminish that. I think the challenge we've seen in government engaging with the industry, and I think if you take Canberra, you think about the industry here in, in Canberra, where I live, most people that, that are in the tech industry here are selling to government. You know, so they, their engagement in a day-to-day is a commercial transaction relationship with government. So I think a lot of the policy engagement that you see from the Indigenous industry is often very focused on government as a customer, which complicates that broader policy conversation. Because as soon as you start to have that commercial interaction, you find the policymakers and, you know, I guess the, the legislative part of departments tend to want to switch off and they want to push that to the CIO group. And so I think that's the fundamental challenge. We need to elevate that conversation from the Indigenous industry out of the 
procurement. And I'm not diminishing procurement policy issues as relevant issues that should be explored and have, you know, a, you know are, are important. But, it, but in some respects, I think that sometimes does the broader policy conversation a disservice because we tend to focus a lot on that and not on the broader issues. All right. David Masters, Global Public Policy Director at Atlassian, thank you very much for joining us today. It's an incredible discussion, and I'm assuming as things start moving faster and faster in an AI world and a quantum-driven world and all those sorts of things coming down the pipe, there are no shortage of issues to engage with. Thanks, David. Thanks, James. Really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.